0: see.
1: Get my mic set up here. Great. Get my participants on the screen as always. Get my chat on the screen as always. Welcome to Money School, everybody. Somebody already told me you could hear me, which is great. I hope it's the not echoey version of the audio. I think it's good. And it's a thrill to see you all show up here every week. You know, when you do something like this, a certain number of people show up to the first one, and then you're pretty convinced, well, nobody will come to the next one. And then they come to the next one. And then you're pretty convinced, well, nobody will come to the next one. We all just keep showing up. And that's fun. And let's make progress. Let's make progress. Today, we're going to talk about what's really my favorite topic in personal finance. Is the topic of income. I think income is the most important topic because everything else we do financially has to fit inside of our income, unless we're in a phase of life where we're borrowing. If we're in medical school or law school, or if we're having, I you know, heaven forbid, if we're having extreme uh, medical challenges where our medical bills are exceeding our monthly income and you know, we're having to go into some medical debt. I hope that's not the case. But for the most part, throughout life, we want our lives to function within our income. So our income becomes our biggest and most important budget category. And I think it's, it's interesting because we have these camps in the world. We have people who, you know, we have the frugal crowd. We have the, bun, the abundant crowd. You've all heard me talk about that probably by now. And those, those groups talk differently about income. Well, I'm going to come back to my basic personal finance philosophy, which is that money is a preferred neutral. Now, this idea of a preferred neutral is something I stole from a a philosophy, a group of philosophers that describe themselves. They call themselves the Stoics. It's like an ancient Roman philosophy. And the Stoics had this idea that they called the preferred indifference, Now, that's not indifference with a CE at the end, it's an indifference with a TS at the end. In other words, it's a list of indifferent things that are preferable. These are things like health and wealth. And the Stoics said, these are things that are basically nice to haves in life. They're not necessarily virtuous on their own, but they can be used for virtue. So I've kind of stolen that and I've said, "I, I view money as a preferred neutral, meaning I don't think that money is inherently good or inherently bad, but if I'm given the choice and, I, and I'm able to hold everything else equal, I'll choose to have more money than less money. When it comes to income, everything else being equal, I'll choose to have higher income than lower income. I realize that some of you might listen to that and say, well, yeah, obviously. But if you know me by now, you know that I'm a person that's a little bit suspicious of, of sort of increase at all cost. So I do want to increase my income, but I don't want it to come at the expense of other things that I prefer. Not just the noble things that we would all say, oh, I don't want to sacrifice family time. Yeah, those those things are great, and I'm with you on that. I'm also not necessarily willing to sacrifice certain amounts of comfort in my life. I, I seem to want to stay within my comfort zone to a certain extent, even if it comes at the expense of increased income. And I think that part of adulthood is making that decision about how much of my comfort zone do I want to give up and, and, and for what, and is the thing that I'm sacrificing for worth it. That's why I put this idea of income in the category of a preferred neutral. I'm happy with it. I could be happy without it. If it doesn't cost me anything excessive, I'll pursue more income. So that's what we're talking about today. The reason I think it's important is that as we explore our financial habits, you know, last week we talked about reducing our expenses or no, that's not true. <laughs> Let me back up. We did not talk about reducing our expenses. We talked about studying our expenses. We talked about studying the money that's leaving our life in hopes of understanding what we truly care about, the, the evidence for what we, cur- we care about today in the form of money that's leaving our life. For many of us, that will mean a reduction in spending in certain areas. It'll also mean an increase in spending in others. The reason I like to put so much emphasis on income is that expense cutting can only take you so far. The simple reality to me, or something I consider a simple reality, is that there is enormous pressure on all of us all the time in the form of observing other people's consumption, seeing advertisements for consumable stuff and kind of watching people's consumption on social media. So that pressure to consume is ever present. I do kind of think it's the work of a lifetime to push back a little bit against that pressure. But in the meantime, one of the impacts seems to be that our desire to consume grows over time rather than shrinks over time. And if our desire to consume is going to be increasing, if we, if we as humans seem to want to buy the bigger and better and newer, then we can either really, really like be laser focused on pinching every single penny where there's a penny to pinch or we can say, well, I'm just gonna make sure that I'm on a track, I'm on a path where my income increases steadily over time to make room for this increased desire for consumption in my life. Also because I think it's fun. It creates opportunities for personal growth, but I I want to give you the preferred neutral as a, as a foundation for the whole conversation. Money is not an inherent good in my mind, but other things being equal, I'll take it if it's coming to me. Okay. Now, what you have on your screen right now is something that I teach to business owners uh, all the time. In fact, I've been teaching this for about four years and it's one of my favorite things I've ever come up with because I think it does a really good job of illustrating how money, how business works, how money flows into a business, why people make purchases in a business. I've called this thing the profit cycle, the revenue cycle. I've never come up with a really good name for it. Now, for those of you who are just listening to audio later, what's on the screen right now is a slide that breaks a business up into three main areas, marketing, sales, and fulfillment. Everything that a business does falls under one of these three headings. Marketing is the stage of business where people who don't know about the business learn about it, in other words, they, become, they go from being strangers to the business to becoming contacts for the business. It's also the phase where those contacts become prospects. I summarize the marketing phase of a business with this phrase, know, like, and trust. Marketing is where people come to know you, like you, and trust you, and they, and they are prepared after going through the marketing phase to hear your offer. The offer phase of the business is sales. So sales is where a prospect becomes a customer. It's where someone who knows you and likes you and trusts you actually agrees to your offer and pays you for it. And then they move on to the fulfillment stage of business. And in the fulfillment stage of business, you deliver the thing you promised to deliver in the sales process. You ship them the widget, you give them the coaching, whatever it is. If you're a plumber, you repair their toilet. This is, the, this is what's happening. After you've delivered a great experience, Those customers become evangelists for your business. They tell other people about your business and that's how it loops back on itself. Customers become evangelists, which loops us back to marketing. Customers of course can also become become customers. Again, they loop back to sales. We make them another offer. They buy something else from us. By the way, if you are self-employed, if you own a business, if you've, if you've kind of struggled with where what's going on in my business, why isn't it thriving the way I want it to? I'll, I'll recommend you this kind of diagram because it will help you ask yourself the question, where is my business breaking down? Is it in the marketing phase? Is it in the sales phase? Or is it in the fulfillment phase? But I'm bringing this to a class today where I know that many of us, maybe even most of us don't own businesses. What I want you to think about is that even those of us who are salaried or hourly employees are engaged in exactly the same process. This process is what put us in a position to earn the amount of money that we're currently earning. See, there was a period of time where the people who are now paying us, in other words, the people who are in the fulfillment phase of our business, they didn't know us. So they had to meet us. And then after meeting us, they had to come to like us and trust us in the context of a specific problem that they were trying to solve. Once we helped them gain that confidence in us and our ability to solve that specific problem, then there was a sales process. In in the job world, that looks like a job interview where they're saying, here's the job. This is what we need. And you're selling them. Yes, I'm the person to fill that job. They give you the job and the sales process concludes. Then we go into the fulfillment phase where you're actually doing the work that they pay you to do. And hopefully the work you're doing is so good that they become evangelists for you within your company or even with themselves where they realize this person is so valuable. I want to give that person more responsibility. I want to keep quote unquote, buying from that person. And I may even buy more from that person in the form of more responsibility and more income. So I think this diagram describes how all of us earn money, whether or not we're employed or self-employed marketing sales and fulfillment. Here's the trick. When I teach this to life coaches, or when I teach this to other kinds of business owners, I think one of the main problems we face when it comes to Increasing our income without increasing sort of the cost and hassle of our income is we get so focused on our identity in the fulfillment phase of the whole cycle. Now, here's what I mean if I ask you what you do for a living, it's pretty likely that you're going to respond with an I am statement I am a teacher, I am a plumber, I'm a lawyer, I'm a bookkeeper, I'm a project manager. You're going, to, you're going to apply with sort of the title you've given yourself, and it might be the title that your education bought you, and that's how you start to see yourself. This happens in the, in the employed world, like I just described. It also very much happens in the self-employed world. If I ask somebody, what do you do? And they say, I am a life coach, for example, because that's where I spend a lot of time with life coaches. I am a life coach. And they really buy into that identity. And part of buying into that identity is getting very, very focused on sort of enhancing their, that identity, enhancing their credibility within that identity. So I see life coaches all the time signing up for the next certification, the next course, the next thing that will help them reinforce their identity as a noun. I am a life coach. The thing is, everybody most money in the world is made not in the fulfillment side of the equation not in the fulfillment phase of business or employment most money is actually made in the marketing phase whoever is the best most effective marketer usually ends up making the most money now in my world you'll hear people say like say things like oh she makes She's making so much more money than I am, but I really think I'm a better coach. And I always say, I don't know whether you are or aren't a better coach. I'm not actually totally sure how to define better coach or better lawyer or better therapist or better teacher. I don't have a great definition for any of those. But in the case of the life coach, I can say I'm pointing to her marketing, her ability to turn strangers into contact, contacts into prospects that is where actually the majority of her money is made. This is especially true in the short term, meaning if we're talking about on a one, two, three-year time horizon, this is especially true. On a five and 10-year time horizon, the quality of the experience matters more, of course, because if you can't deliver on the promise you made, eventually word gets around about that. But when we talk about income and pursuing an increase in income without incurring a lot of extra cost or stress in our life. I'm going to direct us to the marketing side of the equation rather than to the fulfillment side of the equation. Now, what I'm hoping is, since I've never really taught this to people who are not self-employed or business owners, I'm hoping that one of you with me today will challenge me on this and say, all right, this isn't totally crazy, but I don't see quite how it applies to me in my job, for example. Is there anybody who wants to raise their hand, come on screen and talk to me about this cycle and how it might or might not apply to your situation. Okay, the very first hand I saw go up was Trisha's. So Trisha, I'm gonna make you a panelist. And then I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And then I've gotta go to allow you to Show your video. Hopefully, you can start your video now, and you can unmute yourself. Maybe.
2: Okay, I'm unmuted. But you are. Hold on, video. Okay, there we go.
1: Hi, Trisha. Hi. Thanks for doing this. What can I? Uh, what can we talk about?
2: Well, you know, actually, it's very interesting because my husband and I are restaurant owners, and um listening to you talk about just this cycle alone. You know, we've been talking about how to move our business to a whole nother level and how to do that. And I think looking at this, I realize that I'm in a money class. <laughs> that was my husband. <laughs> um
1: You're like, who are you talking so, to?
2: Yeah, I know. <laughs> so um marketing, it's really interesting that that uh That model that you just showed, how much um, emphasis is on the marketing aspect of it. And so um, I'm actually going to talk to him about this and figure out how that applies, though, in the restaurant business. Um, You know, it's a little bit different, different um, marketing for restaurants than it is for. Okay, bye. Love (laughs) you. So, you know, like uh, Jody Moore when she advertises for her marketing, uh, it it's perfect for her field. But for us, we have to figure out how that's going to work. I don't know how that's going to work exactly.
1: I don't either because I don't I don't know I don't know the first thing about restaurant marketing. Um, it does seem like a challenge, but I don't think it changes the reality that w- the restaurant that markets the best. In the long run i think wins now restaurants are probably a very good example where the quality of the product matters or the i should say the quality of the experience matters i think a ton Mm -hmm. but it starts with the marketing because if nobody knows about that the quality of experience then the thing can't find traction right so I think restaurants are actually a business where a huge part of the marketing probably is the location of the restaurant, where if the location of the restaurant makes it visible to a lot of people that maybe that's a huge percentage of the, uh, of, of marketing on its own. Um, But as you and your husband think about your, think about your, your marketing um, or think about your business in general, I think the focus has to be, if you already feel like you're delivering a great experience, then the next next question is, how do we how do we have more strangers become aware of that and convert them to that experience?
2: Right, because you know I was when you were talking about um, customers becoming evangelists. Mm-hmm. Um, we're at our five year mark now, so we definitely have a following, a faithful following, and that's spreading. But um, and our and the experience is what they come back for, but yet it's not enough, you know? I mean, we could ride this out, but like you were saying um, earlier about how the path of income is to increase it regularly.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Now we have to figure out, okay, the experience is there, we have a following, but how do we market to, I don't know if it's increasing the experience or drawing more people in, like you were saying, I'm not sure, I I don't know how that's gonna look exactly.
1: It's definitely drawing more people in you always have to have an eye on the experience and in the restaurant business, I don't think, uh, I don't think that the experience is the food alone. Um, I don't think Chick-fil-A's food is amazing, but I spend a lot of money at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. And one of the biggest reasons I spend a lot of money at Chick-fil-A is the experience. They have that thing dialed in. And so I know what I'm getting when I go to Chick-fil-A. I know what I'm purchasing from chick fil A. I'm purchasing convenience and, and kids that aren't whining. And so I continue to buy that over and over again. Um, the last thing I'll tell you, Tricia, and I appreciate you bringing this topic up to us. The last thing I'll tell you is my guess would be that in the restaurant game, a key element of marketing is uh, multiple locations. Um, if I, the, the little bit of thinking I've done about restaurant business, and it, it's not a lot of thinking, is when I do the math on a restaurant in my head, because I'm a nerd and I do things like that, I can't get very excited about the numbers until the number of locations grows uh, because one store can only probably do so much and the first store probably does better when there's a second store and you can start to raise awareness across a wider percentage of the population because you are convenient to a wider percentage of the population. So... You can tell me I'm crazy because you know your business and I don't. When I think about restaurants, I think restaurants don't get exciting until set two, three, five stores later.
2: Except if it's a mom and pop store and we live in a smaller town. So I don't know. I don't know if that's an option, but there's, I think there's definitely an option for increased income though, or increased, you know.
1: So in a smaller town, the, the only option is to get more of the people to come more of the time. Yeah. And that and and I don't mean to make that sound easy, but I think it is that simple. How do I get more of the people to come more of the time? Uh, because accessing more people if I'm not going to go to a bigger a bigger geographic location mm-hmm. may seem like it's not feasible. Right. Okay. Uh, somebody talk. says I somebody in the chat said I don't think I agree there's an amazing hamburger place in our town and it is always busy. That's a totally fair point. Uh, In a restaurant, always busy doesn't mean very profitable necessarily.
2: Well, right. Because in the restaurant business, the profit margin is like less than 5%. Yes. And that's a thriving restaurant. Yes. So to try to increase that tiny little percentage is, is challenging (laughs)
1: <laughs> squeezing blood out of the proverbial turnip or some <laughs> saying that goes like that. Yeah. So that's the, the restaurant business is not an easy business in my opinion, because the margins are so thin because of high fixed costs with uh, real estate, high fixed costs with real estate, high, high costs of labor and high variable food costs. Right. It's not an easy game you're trying to play. I respect you for trying to play it. Um, in your case, it sounds like we got to get more of the people more of the time.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and sell them enormous amounts of high-margin soda.
2: <laughs> well, we have a bar, and our bar brings in a lot of money.
1: <laughs> enormous amounts of high-margin alcohol. That's yep. right. I guess I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, well, great to talk to you, Trisha.
2: You
1: too. So, who um, who has their hand up? that that wants to talk about their job. If if you are employed on a W-2 like salaried, I want you to keep your hand up. And if you don't do me a favor and maybe take your hand down. Uh, Mason, I've got your hand up and I'm gonna hope you fit the bill. I'm gonna make you a panelist right now.
0: Okay, can you hear me?
1: Yeah. Hi, Mason. Great to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you too, Mark. And thank you for doing this course. This has been great. And Happy to. Thanks. Yeah. Like, like like I said earlier in the chat, I actually left Jody Moore's boot camp, where they were talking about money today to come over <laughs> here and talk to you. And it's her fault that I'm here.
1: <laughs> I, I'm talking to her immediately after this and we'll have to compare notes. She and I are talking at 1130 my time. So we'll see. I'll tell her I was stealing people from her. Well, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, I
0: work as a Scrum master and huh? agilist for yeah. Motorola Solutions. Cool, and I am full-on W two employee. I um, it took me eighteen months to land the job between April of eighteen and October of nineteen. So I definitely understand the having more money is better than having less, um, and I understand how. The marketing got me into the job. I, that's yeah. what my resume was. My my resume was, and, and for those who don't know, a scrum master is a special kind of um, is a, is a special kind of project manager
1: in right? the software world. Yeah,
0: it, it it's not it's primarily software. That's where it comes out of, but it can also be apparently. They just put out a new scrum guide that said, hey, it can be applied to lots of places. But
1: oh, that's I, that's great to hear. Cool. Great. I, I
0: found I found Kanban works better for that anyway, if you're going to go outside of the software world. Mm. Anyway, um, but I don't, and and having tried to be a writer, tried, tried to be an entrepreneur on my own and not succeeded so far, I am not seeing though how the marketing and sales continues to influence my delivery because my job is to show up to help manage my teams to make sure that they are delivering their commitments mm-hmm. and marketing and sales. I mean, I, I, really don't see how those tie in a well, anymore and B I've never been strong at them in the first place.
1: Well, so here's, and I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up, Mason, because I think you are stronger at them than you realize. And you're helping me maybe articulate this whole idea a little bit better because you're saying marketing and sales got me the job in the first place, but now I have the job and the job just is the job. I'm actually trying to get you to zoom out one level and say, okay, I have the current job. It's with Motorola. I have aspirations to new challenges and new income in my life. Your job, I think everyone's job as an employed person with a salary is to continue the marketing process while employed. There's internal marketing where you are having great relationships with the people who write your checks, the people who give you work within the company, the people who assign projects, wherever there's an opportunity to excel within that world, you don't just want to be doing the best work. You want to be marketing yourself as someone who's doing the best work. Now in its worst form, I hear employed people describing this as the game. I don't like the politics. I don't like the game. I don't want to play the game. I just want to do my work. And I'm trying to steer people toward I understand that you just want to do your work, but human beings love shiny objects and we love what's popular and we love what's scarce. And that's as true for the person managing you at your job as it is for anyone else. So the marketing process has to continue even within our company after we have a job. It doesn't have to look like playing games or sucking up or any of that. It just has to look at being thoughtful about, I'm going to do my work but I'm also going to make an effort to have that work seen and to participate wherever there's an opportunity to participate. I'm going to participate, so that when a new opportunity arises, I'm on the short list. So I would call that internal marketing for an employed person like you. When I think about external marketing, it's always been kind of interesting to me, interesting to me that employed people don't spend more time developing relationships with future potential employers. I I do accounting work. I have a couple of good friends who are accountants and, you know, sort of the pinnacle of the accounting world is this chief financial officer, but Mm -hmm. below the chief financial officer, you have, you know, controllers and you have other titles. My friends who are accountants who are not CFOs, but I think are absolutely qualified to be CFOs. I don't know why they are not at any given moment, maintaining a relationship with 20 CEOs and 20 CFOs at other companies So that when a CFO moves on to a different job, she or he goes to their CEO and says, I actually already know the person who should probably take my place. You should have a conversation with this person. So by continuing our external marketing, we position ourselves to capitalize on opportunities when they come up. And we're not starting from scratch every time. In the technology world in particular, not that I'm so knowledgeable of that world, but I have a brother who's a programmer. I have a brother-in-law who's a programmer.
0: Aren't you in many high?
1: I am in Lehigh. Yes. I, am in Lehigh. I grew up
0: there actually, but, um, and it's, so the, the Lehigh te- tech hub that you live in is not the Lehigh I grew up
1: in. Right. And, and it is a major tech hub. And what I'm observing in some uh, people that I live near and my brother, my brother-in-law is that the way that often the way people increase their income the most easily is by switching jobs. Because, yeah. and I could speak to why I, I will speak to why, But that's why I'm saying, even after you've secured your job and you've got a great salary going, your job is to continue the marketing process because it's the marketing that is most likely to increase your income over time and take you from a person who's making 60, then 80, then 90, then 120. When we're talking about what gets me to 200,000 plus in my employment, it's marketing much more than it's um, the work itself. Do you think that's a, a reasonable statement, Mason? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so that's where I would send you as you think about, all right, I'm doing a great job as a scrum master for Motorola. Number one, what can I do to market myself internally on my path to career and income growth, but also what can I do to market myself externally? Who should I be maintaining a relationship with so that when that $200,000 plus job becomes available, I'm already on their mind. Okay. Is that fair?
0: That's fair. It works. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for
1: chatting with me. No problem. Thank you for sharing. You bet. All right. Um, I want to just, I want to thank Mason, first of all, because that was useful. Something I want to say about uh, what I was just chatting with Mason about was, oh, and I hope I didn't just lose my train of thought. It's about the marketing. Oh, I think it was about perceived value. So, all value in an economic sense is perceived value. In other words, what a person perceives, their opinion of you and of your work, it's not objective, it is subjective. And part of being a marketer is not its not lying, it's not deceiving, it's not exaggerating. It is increasing the perception, your perceived value with the people that you interact with. Part of that is moving yourself from uh sorry my mic is being squirrely on me part of that is moving from a a place where you're describing yourself as a noun so mason describes himself as a scrum master that's fair that is his job title i want mason to now think more about what does it mean to be a scrum master what what problems do i solve and how do i solve them and how might that translate whether or not the next job i pursue has the same title of scrum master. Can I tell a story that shows whatever employer is looking to fill whatever position? Can I tell a story that makes it clear that I'm the person for that rather than just trying to rely on my title? Okay. Just, I'm just checking the chat to see if I've missed anything. Somebody says, I have an example of this. Whenever somebody, someone asks you for anything or gives you an assignment, ask, is there anything else I can do for you? Simple way to leave a great impression, make making promotions more likely. Yeah, that's a perfect example. So it's it's just so easy. It's just so easy for all of us, whether we're self-employed or employed, to move through our world, to move through our work and say, I have been assigned to do X, I'm going to do X. That is That is my job. Well, the job is actually not to do X, the reality is the job is to make the people who pay us look and feel better. And by look better, I mean they want to move through the world perceived as someone who's successful and smart and accomplished and has it all together. We, as the people who work for them, are in a position to help them achieve that increased status. That should be our focus if we want to increase our income. That should also be our focus if we're if we're self-employed, or if we're coaches or whatever trying to increase our income. Our job is to make other people look good, to help them be successful and solve their problems. Their problems are also very often mental and emotional. That sounds funny, but you know what I mean. They're, they're problems of perception. They're not hard and fast like, hey, Mark, you're a spreadsheet guy, build me a spreadsheet necessarily. It's what makes my the person who's paying me, what makes them look better, what makes them feel better. And that's why they'd want to pay me more money. Somebody in the chat says, what makes their life easier? Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, Someone says, can you please give us an example of a concise story from Mason? Okay. So here's, here's what I, uh, here's an example I want to give from my own life right now, because I have it handy. Uh, Many of you, maybe all of you are on my email list and you saw that I just posted a, a job posting for an executive assistant. And I will tell you, I'm overwhelmed by the the quality, the caliber of people who are applying for the job. And I even, I read a couple of these cover letters and I sent my wife a text and I said, I'm really humbled by this. I'm really humbled that people of this caliber would have any interest in working with me. Let me tell you, everyone who's applied has been great. The people, there's a short list of people who have really blown me away. And the interesting pattern that has come from those, the short list of those kind of cover letters is, rather than just telling me i the you know the standard thing is if i say in my job posting i'm looking for someone who of course is extremely organized the person sends me a cover that letter that says i am organized that might be true but i don't know how or why it's true so so far the best cover letters that have come in have said yes i'm an organized person let me tell you a story here's what i did here's how i did it here was the result Here's how that relates to what you're asking for, Mark. Those people, I mean, it's just blown me away. I, In fact, I'm in a situation where I'm not totally sure how I'm going to pick a person uh, because there really are so many of you who are so amazingly capable. And those that I don't hire, I'm def- definitely just going to tell you, look, take what you've sent me, send it to some other people. You're going to have a job like this one in no time because... The person has been so clear about what they do and how they do it, what problems they solve and how they solve them, that there's no doubt in my mind that the world wants to pay them money to solve those problems, whether it's me or whether it's the next person. Okay. Let me jump back to my slides. I do want to, uh, before we're done today, I want to chat with at least one more of you. This is a graph, I'm taking you back to my, on screen, I'm taking you back to my days as a, as a, a student of economics in college and all we did was graphs. It's not all we did, we did a lot of calculus too, but a lot of graphs. On the, on the screen you have a graph where the, the x-axis, the vertical axis is price and the y-axis, is, I'm calling it pain and trust. And the arrow on your screen you can see that price goes up as pain and trust increase. This intersection of pain and trust where a person has a specific problem, a specific pain, and they trust you to be the one to solve it, the more pain they have and the more trust there is, the higher the price is. That's true whether we call the price a salary or a commission, or it's actually the price of a product we're selling. It's true across, all, across the board. The more you are trusted to solve painful problems for people, the higher the price you'll be able to command. The less you're trusted or the smaller, you know, sort of least painful problem that you're solving, the lower the price is going to be. So as you think about increasing your income, you want to become a person who is very aware of of high pain points. And you want to become a person who has the skills to not just solve those pain points, but to communicate your ability to solve those pain points. And the better you are at communicating that, the higher the price goes up for your services. By the way, as I've as I've tried to think about examples of this, I've thought, I, I, people might even overestimate what it means, what a painful problem might be. One painful problem. I'll use my brother as an example. He's a he's a software developer, and when we talk about just sort of the marketing sales and fulfillment in the fulfillment section, he would be, you know, software engineer, whatever his title happens to be. I asked my brother once, are you like a great programmer? And he's like, "No, I'm, I'm mediocre. Like I'm, I'm maybe slightly above average. Now the programmers I know tend to be pretty self-deprecating. So he, he may be better than he's letting on, but he said, no, I'm pretty good. He said, there are people in my company who are amazing. They're unbelievable when it comes to creating software and and the logic and the processes that create that. He said, so I'm just okay. But he makes really good money as a salaried person. And I asked him about that and he said, look, it comes down to this. I'm easy to talk to. I'm easy to talk to. Non-technical people like talking to me. They know that I'm not going to throw jargon at them. They know I'm not going to talk down to them. And so... Uh, I've, you know, I've had opportunities that other people might not have. I I probably make more money than I would if I had the exact same technical skills, but my, my interpersonal skills weren't as developed. So when I talk about pain and trust, there are, there are people in positions of, you know, the ones who are writing the checks. You have to remember that one of the problems that they're trying to solve is I want to hire a programmer that I don't hate talking to. And if you become a person who can solve that pain, your price goes up. In my business, I do accounting. I am not an accountant. I took one accounting class at Brigham Young University. I enjoyed it. Now I'm a CFO. I don't have any particularly, (laughs) I don't have, I don't even have a college degree, let alone a degree in accounting, let alone a master's degree in accounting, let alone. I, passing the, the, the Certified Public Accounts exam. I don't have any of those credentials. I make a great, great living as a chief financial officer. My clients have told me through the years, look man, I know you're not an accountant. I know that there's probably a real accountant who would understand the technicalities of this whole thing better, but I hate talking to them. You get me, I like talking to you. I know that you're doing a sufficient job. You bring some other inter- interesting things to the table you're my CFO. What we're looking for is this intersection of pain and trust. And we have to stop being convinced that trust is only related to credentials. There are a lot of interpersonal and softer skills that relate to increasing income that all of you have control over. Then you take those skills, you apply them to your internal marketing at your current job and your external, external marketing. And by the way, in, in normal world, external marketing is called networking and relationship development. And over time, those things turn into increased income. Let me look at my next slide. Okay, great. I'm going to leave that slide there. And I'm going to jump back to the chat. I'm going to see if I've got two hands up right now. If your hand is up and you still want to talk, keep it up. If you don't want to talk, I'm going to ask you to put your hand back down. So Melissa, your hand's been up for a while. So if you still want to talk, I'm about to bring you on screen. <laughs> she disappeared. Fair enough. Uh, Sophie, your hand's been up for a while. Oh, wait. No, oh, there you are, Melissa. Okay. No, I don't want to leave you hanging. You're, you're on, Melissa. I hope. Hi.
3: Hi. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. This
3: conversation is amazing and it's blowing my mind. I work as a director of career services at a university and I have a coaching practice on the side. And I I'm just taking notes like crazy. I think your revenue cycle, your business cycle is just so spot on, mm. both in my role as an employee of a university in terms of how I show up and how I deliver value, as well as the, the teaching and coaching that I do with people around how they define their value proposition, how they put together their unique blend of skills and interests to create a value proposition that that becomes a part of their brand that's a part of their linkedin profile or their resumes or or whatever and i i just love this you know how you're framing the internal and external marketing i think is is just brilliant and i'm you know it's it's fascinating to hear you talk about it and you're kind of putting it in a language or in a framework that is different than how I've heard it described before. Mm. Um, So anyway, I just love it. And I wanted to to just say how much it resonates with me, both as an employee, as well as as a career development professional and and all the things that you're saying are just just so spot on.
1: Uh, Well, that endorsement from you and your position means a lot. So I appreciate it. I will, with that, I'll commit to continuing to develop these ideas and try to make them more and more useful over time.
3: Yeah, and it's it's helpful too, as I think about in terms of money issues, that it is possible. And even as I'm saying this, I know it's kind of stupid, but it's possible to grow your income. It's possible to be very strategic. And I think, you know, I've fallen into that category of of women who it's like, I'm just going to do a really, really great job and be really good at what I do and just trust then that it'll get noticed or that somehow progression will happen. And that's just so not
1: the case. And uh, let me interrupt you for a second, because that's such an important point And I, I wanted to make sure I didn't miss it in the course of this call. I recently read an amazing book by a, an author and professor named Adam Grant the book is called mm-hmm. give and take mm-hmm. and lots of gold nuggets in that book. One of them that really caught me as a, as an employer and as a coach is that he said, when they do research on salary negotiation in particular, uh, women tend to seriously under negotiate. They under advocate for themselves in salary Mm -hmm. negotiations. And there's, there's lots of data to support this. And all three of my employees are women. And so I really, as an employer, I thought, okay, I really need to be aware of this because it's, it's way too easy for women to be underpaid basically. Um, So, and I think there's lots of interesting, you definitely would have more insight into why, but I want any, any woman who's listening to this right now to know that there is research that tells you you're probably under negotiating relative to what men typically do.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it goes uh, just hand in glove with what we're talking about in this money course in terms of our belief systems and, and what we expect and, and, what we perceive as being possible. Um it, it's so obvious in some ways and yet it's it's mind blowing at the same time. So anyway, thank you for doing this course. It's just absolutely amazing and yeah, lots of good stuff to chew on here.
1: Well thank you. I appreciate you coming on screen, Melissa, and sharing that because yeah. um thank you. Yeah I think I think we've got I think we've got to keep going down this path because well, I'll let you go, and then I'll keep my, I'll keep rambling. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I was going to say, Melissa makes such an important point because she says, you know it sounds stupid to say it, but you actually can change your income, and that's exactly what I'm trying to get to today, folks. Is if we allow ourselves to slip into the idea that our income just is what it is because we associate a certain level of income with a certain job title, we we're just under earning and for no good reason. Like there's no good reason for us to not be making small incremental efforts in improving the way we market ourselves and improving the way we perceive ourselves so that as opportunities for increased income present themselves, we're already tuned to those and ready to take advantage. This is not something we have to do, you know, overnight, but it is something that I think if we make it a steady focus, it probably makes the difference of Well, it just makes the difference of huge amounts of income over the course of a working career. Okay. Let me go back to my slides momentarily. Uh, This dovetails great with what Melissa just shared with us, because one of the thoughts I wanted to make sure you had in your head as you left today was that there is a person who is doing your kind of work and being paid much more for it. And they're not better better than you at the work. They've just put themselves on a path to be paid more for it. Okay, for the record, I also want to say luck is a factor here. I also believe, you know, there, there is such a thing as privilege. I'm not terribly well educated about that, but like I just shared with Melissa, there's research that says the women tend to under negotiate when it comes to their salaries. These things are all a factor. Our job is to become aware of people who do the kind of work I do, their day-to-day activities look approximately similar to mine, but they're earning multiples of what I earn. I just want to be aware of that, understand that, and then decide whether to point myself in that direction. Here's an example from my own life. My dad uh, is retired now. He's a career teacher. He taught at a community college in my hometown for 30 years, about maybe 30 years. And before that, he'd been an educator for 10 years um, overseas maybe 10 years ago before my dad retired, he and I were both in my basement. I was about to do a webinar for my online membership that had, I don't know, at the time, a thousand members or something. And we did webinars like this one. And my job on those webinars was to show up, bring some ideas, present those ideas, interact with the class, and, you know, leave them some assignments, and then repeat a month later. My dad at the exact same moment was having calls he got this interesting thing with his community college. He was an English teacher and he would do one-to-one calls with his students, sort of bringing them along in their ability to communicate in writing. And as I'm sitting literally next to my dad in in my basement, as he's doing his work and I'm doing my work, I thought to myself, um, I thought to myself, my dad's really great at his work. I make multiples of what he makes and we're doing basically the same thing. Now, my dad was and is a very happy person. So he wasn't missing out on a ton of happiness by earning a fraction of what I was earning. But I couldn't help noticing the the juxtaposition of we're doing the same exact thing, but I'm making at the time probably three or four X what he was making. That's interesting. It's just interesting. It's worth thinking about. The set of activities that I engage in on a day-to-day basis. What is the, high, the, the person who's doing those same activities, but receiving multiples of the amount of money that I'm receiving? What's the difference there? How do I point myself in that same direction if I even want to? Because you don't have to, to be a happy person. But if I want to, what does that look like? Is there anybody who wants to come on screen with me for two or three minutes and, and talk about how maybe that applies to you? And then we'll kind of conclude for the day. I do have hands up. Sophie, your hand's been up for a while. If you want to chat, please keep it up. If not, I'm going to move on to somebody else. Okay, your hand's up. So I want to talk to you.
4: Hello. Hello. Yeah, let me start the video.
1: Hi, nice to meet you.
4: Nice to meet you, Mark. So um, I'm a public servant for the Canadian government. Okay. And um, I'm um, ten years now uh, in this uh, position. And recently, last year, I would like I started to do some steps in order to uh, get to the next level in my. Um, own pay scale like mm-hmm. classification yep so i'm at the level five now and the the next step is the level six and um i've been chatting with some managers and i thought like i did the networking i have i'm i'm well perceived i usually uh, i'm able to be supported by my manager with different projects i want to go on mm-hmm. but when i come to um asking for this next level the answer I got which is understandable too is like you need to be in a pool because those positions are not just giving out given out you Mm -hmm. have to apply and compete for it and it's a it's a long process and it's it's a process and I you I did that to get into the government job I did a lot I did 15 over 12 months and um, and I got the job and then after a while it's hiring to do those process and then you get to a level where you feel comfortable and then you start poundering like what you were saying comfort versus higher pay
3: mm-hmm.
4: and um, so now I'm facing this idea of like I need to go and do the process again but at the same time I'm also very attracted by other position at the same level like horizontally
1: mm-hmm.
4: and my question to you is like, what should I focus on? Keep moving towards similar position in a different group or different mm-hmm. aspect of my job mm-hmm. or try to uh, do the competition and aim higher for a higher salary?
1: Wow, it's it's such a great question, Sophie. I want you to think about how you feel when you think about the different options. So if, if you... In other words, I want you to, I want you to try to understand your reasons for pursuing the increased salary. And I want you to think about your reasons for exploring the horizontal changes, the lateral changes, and you kind of just get to compare and contrast the benefits of the increased money versus the different type of work. And in this case, I don't, I don't know whether this is helpful to you, but I I want, I want to make sure you understand that my opinion is that the money may not be better than the experience you'd have in the different work. Mm. I don't know whether it would. You can think about how that money would translate into different experiences in your personal life and decide which experiences do I want to pursue? Do I want to pursue the, the experience of the work in these lateral moves? or do I want to experience the increased ability to consume that would come with the increased income? Mm-hmm. The other factor, of course, is maybe the the vertical move doesn't just offer more money. Maybe it also offers, enjoyable and challenging work and new social connections, you would know. So the thing I would tell you to do is to really trust your, your instincts. And if you, if you, as you decide between those paths, if you're doing either one, because you are afraid of missing out, I would say that's a signal that it may not be the thing you're most excited about. I would hope that decision would come from a place of enthusiasm and confidence regardless of the money or the increase in, in income or not.
4: Mm-hmm. Does
1: that make the thing sense? Is,
4: it makes sense. And what I've noticed, it's either for my own career or for my colleagues' careers, when we tend to go on the horizontal side and explore various aspects of our own topic, spend two years here, two years there. In the end, when we come to the employer and say, now, now I have all those experiences that qualifies me for the higher position we usually don't get it it's usually like you have to go to the high go up 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 until you cannot go higher and usually it's not because you have the most or the most experience horizontally that yes. you will be considered to go to the high uh, to the vertical position so at one point it's like okay one two it's fun i'm like shiny think i wanted to apply for your executive assistant mm-hmm. obviously i'm not an executive assistant but i'm i'm this is how my brain brain works but then at one point once you've done one or two lateral move It's like, I really have now to go up because if I keep the lateral move, this is kind of how I'm going to be labeled in my resume, just lateral move. uh, Uh,
1: Another great point, Sophie. And this is something I want everyone to hear. Part of all of our working lives, whether we're self-employed or employed is to really deeply understand the game that we have chosen to play. Because in your game, it sounds like part of the game is that, that, uh, a generalist approach, a broad approach Mm -hmm. is penalized in that game. Maybe. So you, you have to decide, well, if that, if those are sort of the, the rules of the game, I have to decide whether I even if, whether I'm willing to play the game, whether I'm willing to win the game or whether I'm going to choose a different path. Mm -hmm. And I just, there's nothing wrong with choosing a different path. If you've decided I want to have these rich experiences elsewhere and I still know how to achieve my financial goals, but I'm, I'm at this point acknowledging the game and, and kind of opting out of the game. Mm.
4: Okay.
1: The last thing I'll, I'll share with you, Sophie and share with everybody is a long time ago, a good friend of mine who now employs, he employs 120 people or something. We were talking about increasing employees income. And he said, you know, we look at the whole market. We actually, they spend a lot of money researching compensation to make sure that they're competitive in their compensation. But he said, beyond that, the reason I'm going to give you more money is if I have the potential to lose you by not giving you more money. If someone else has given you an offer, I'm going to match that offer unless I'm willing to lose you. So This isn't about manipulation or gameplay. This is about the simple sort of laws of economics that say we have leverage. If someone else has made us an offer that our employer then has to match. And I don't know how that applies in a government world, but it might look for you exploring, look like you exploring things in the private world, private sector that might give you more leverage in your desire to have different positions in your, in the public sector. I don't know.
4: Hmm. That's something I have to think, but I'm, I must say, uh, I'm pretty privileged and so far my employer has been uh, supportive and great and allow me all the expansion that I would like to do is it's just a matter of me deciding now, do I go to the management side or do I keep exploring the other fun part of my department? So.
1: I'll leave you with two thoughts. these thoughts, I think, apply to everybody. First of all, I want you all to go read a book called Range. The author's name, I think, is Epstein. I'm not sure. I love the book. It's called Range. It talks about how generalists who have a broad experience can end up being the most valuable people. So I encourage everybody to read that book. The second thing is all of us, our ability to have what we want in the long run comes down to our ability to tell a story about why we're the person for the job that we want or for the client that we want if we're self-employed or if uh, a product that we wanna sell as a business owner, all of it comes down to being able to take our experience and craft it into a story that is compelling enough that we're chosen. So even if the standard in your world, uh, Sophie, is that people who who go broad are kind of penalized within the game, if you can tell the best story, you probably get to break that rule. Okay. And breaking that rule might even make your story more interesting.
4: Yeah. So I know it's possible food for thought. Thank you.
1: Okay. Thank Thank you you for, thanks for chatting with me.
4: Bye-bye.
1: Oh, somebody says David Epstein just spoke at BYU yesterday. That is something I would have liked to see. That book is, that book is fantastic. You know, please read that book. Okay, folks, we're going to wind down. Let me get just a couple more thoughts to you. If you interact with me for more than about a month, you're going to hear me give this quote. So be ready for the next time because it's coming. Peter Drucker said, or at least he's one of the people that's attributed this quote, people often overestimate what they can accomplish in one year, but they underestimate what they can accomplish in five years. After 15 years of various forms of self-employment. And after the last seven years of working in other people's businesses and supporting them, this to me seems like a universal truth. I know it's not, but it seems to me like it is. We are so, so underestimating what we could do on a five-year time horizon. On a walk with my wife the other day, she said, what are you going to tell people about income? And I said, I want to tell people that Almost any number they tell me that they would like to be earning in five years, I believe they can accomplish it. That's pretty much it. Give yourself five years to head down that path, pick your number, and I think you can do it. It might require a change of job. It might require a change of career. It might require some discomfort. But if you believe that amount of income would actually substantially benefit your life without costing you too much, I believe you can have it on a five-year time horizon. So your homework is to think about your income-generating activities, the things you might call a job or a business. Think about your income-generating activities in terms of what you do and what problems you solve. Start to think about and practice the skill of turning those things into stories. And then start trying to find out the maximum amount of money that a person who does approximately what you do, the problems that you solve, find out the craziest amount of money that anyone is earning doing those things. Not because that's the correct number, but because it might help you reframe the whole thing and totally shift your perspective on what's possible and what's reasonable as it relates to your ability to generate income. Income is not happiness, but if we're going to be working and creating and contributing, we might as well get paid. Thanks everybody for being here. Thanks for amazing interactions as always. Uh, Money School website will be live by tomorrow at midnight. That's the deadline I need. It'll have an archive of all the calls and we'll be talking again next week. Next week, we're talking about savings and as a subheading on savings, this idea of retirement. I'm really grateful you all came to spend some time with me today and have an amazing week.